Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Find a fresh take on a fall getaway to Wilmington, North Carolina and beaches. Enjoy hiking trails in a state park, fresh seafood with a sight of live music and fall festivals galore. Then live it up along the Riverwalk in Wilmington's historic downtown. With three island beaches, Carolina, Curie and Wrightsville and a vibrant downtown, you get the best of the Carolina coast all in one place. Plan your fall getaway at WilmingtonandBeachesVacation.com. Welcome to the Inside the Boards podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping you learn to think like a question writer so you can study smarter, not harder, and succeed in medical school. Hi, everyone. This is Pranay Bonagiri. Today, I have Dr. Alex Scheel on with me to discuss some important topics related to pediatric health. So Dr. Alex Scheel is a current pediatric hospitalist fellow at the Helen DeVoe Children's Hospital in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Dr. Scheele went to undergrad at the University of Missouri and then decided to stay at the same institution for medical school. Since then, she has completed her pediatric residency at, at the University of Kansas. Dr. Scheele's research now focuses on pediatric and adolescent substance use and exposure. Is there anything you'd like me to add to your bio? No, that pretty well covers it. Okay, sounds good. So, Dr. Shield, I figured we could start with some background information about yeah. you and kind of how you got started down your career path. I think it'll give our listeners some insight in how you ended okay. up where you are today. Yeah. Could you, could you tell me why you decided to pursue pediatrics? I'd love to. I think, it, you know, going through medical school, I, I kept a pretty open mind with each rotation that I was going to um, and tried to envision myself in that specialty. And um, what I found was that in my family medicine rotation, um, interacting with those pediatric patients really like brought me the most joy and the most energy. And uh, on my OB rotation, I was really distracted by what was happening with the baby after it was out. And I wasn't exactly the best like retractor or, you know, sutures cutter um, after the baby was out um, during the deliveries. And then I got to my pediatrics rotation and it was just joy and happiness all the time. Kids are just, they're so resilient and so optimistic so much of the time. And they have such wonderful, unique perspectives on life that um, it really wasn't hard for me to realize that peds was where I wanted to spend my life. Yeah, I feel like a lot of medical students have a similar kind of story. They just get into a rotation and they feel like they really, they really fit. So that's good. Yeah, yeah. Why did you kind of decide to pursue the hospitalist fellowship specifically? Mm -hmm. So as much of a huge value pediatric primary care is, um, it just, you know, it wasn't where I was 
you know, finding all of my joy. I really, um, I really enjoy, you know, fixing problems. Um, I actually initially thought I wanted to go into emergency medicine. So taking care of kiddos in the hospital, having those diagnostic moments, getting to um, treat them is really kind of up my alley and really where my skill set lays. And as far as deciding to do the fellowship, I'm interested in things like quality improvement and research. And I, I see myself having um, a career in um, like becoming a division director higher up in the administration. And I thought that the fellowship would set me up best for that. Thank you for that insight. Um, yeah. Students that have any interest in pediatrics, what kind of advice do you have for them? During your rotation, get on the floor and play with the kids, like get at their level and really like try to make that connection. Because, you know, in peds, um, whenever I'm talking to the family or to a new patient, I'm talking to the kid as much as I can because I want to hear from their perspective because their perspective can change how you approach things. It might not change like your, you know, which antibiotic you're going to choose necessarily. You know, how you how you get that kid engaged in their care can really make a difference on them in the long term. Um, and it can make them less scared of healthcare workers in general. Um, so, yeah, get on the floor, play with the kids. They're so much fun. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. <laughs> Definitely during my pediatric rotations, I love talking to the kids. Is there anything else you'd want students to know about pediatrics? Otherwise, we can move on to the questions. I think another common saying we like to say in peds is kids are not little adults. Approaching them is different in a lot of different um, like pathophysiologic ways. So um, even if you're not thinking about going into pediatrics, just don't treat kids like they're little adults and have an open mind. Great. Thank you for that. Yeah. So today we're going to be talking about marijuana and nicotine use in adolescents yeah. and kids. So. I thought we could start with some questions around marijuana. So yeah, the first USMLE board type question I picked, mm -hmm. um, we have a 15 year old man or boy who presents to the adolescent clinic for an evaluation, which was scheduled by his mother. He's with his mother who is concerned about his substance use. She remarks that he always smells of marijuana and she's concerned about whether he is using it or not. He claims that his friend smoked marijuana and the urine drug scheme that you did uh, came back positive is from being around his friends who smoke. On physical exam, which of the following signs would point you towards concern of personal use of marijuana? Would it be A, pale sclera and an enlarged liver? B, decreased bowel sounds and a lack of nasal hairs? C, conjunctival injection and yellowing of the fingertips? D, yellowing of the teeth and gingival hyperplasia? Or E, decreased arm flexor strength and weight gain? So um, the correct answer here is going to be C, that conjunctival injection and yellowing of the fingertips. So um, one fun thing about this question is um, adolescents will like to deflect or even adults will do this too, that the positive screen isn't from their use, it's from being around other people. And uh, studies have actually shown that even if you're like in a closed room with a lot of marijuana for like over an hour, it's very unlikely that you're going to have enough exposure that your urine test is going to be positive. So that's a common excuse, but it's not actually backed up by studies. <laughs> um, the first answer um, that they give you, the pale sclera and enlarged liver, sounds like they're getting more alcohol use and the cirrhosis that uh, comes with chronic alcohol use. 
the lack of nasal hairs is a really good indicator that someone's snorting something or insufflating is the technical medical word for it. Um, and so that's commonly going to be cocaine. The yellowing of the teeth and gingival hyperplasia sounds like nicotine. And then actually it doesn't come to mind what the flexor strength and weight gain is. But the red injected eyes um, and those yellow fingertips are pretty, pretty classic of um, marijuana use, especially the conjunctival injection that'll happen pretty quickly. Yeah. So, yeah, no, I agree completely. And thank you for explaining those answer choices. So kind of some follow up questions on that. What are some other signs and symptoms of acute marijuana use or intoxication should we be looking out for? So um, the big effect that marijuana has on the um, nervous system in the body gives the eat, sleep, relax, and forget kind of syndrome. So like you're really chilling out. So it's going to increase your appetite. It's going to make you a little bit more somnolent, um, more relaxed, and it's actually going to impair your memory a little bit. Um, Is there any difference in these signs or symptoms for children versus adolescents and adults? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we've been seeing a lot and what some of my research um, is looking at is uh, accidental ingestions in young kiddos. Younger children have, of course, smaller bodies and different metabolism than adolescents and adults. And so they can, especially with edibles, they'll get a much higher dose of THC, you know, per their body fat than an adult will. And so their effects will be much more profound. So what we typically see when they present to the hospital is profound altered mental status, almost coma-like, and they'll have some pretty profound ataxia as well. They often will get lumbar punctures and work up for brain tumors or um, CNS infections or work up for seizures because that's kind of what they come in looking like. Wow. That does not sound like a fun workup, actually. No, it's not. And it's an expensive workup. Yes, for sure. So speaking of edibles, do you see any difference in signs of symptoms between ingested and or inhaled use or other routes of administration? Yeah. So it, um, it's not so much that the end results are different, um, the timing. Okay. So edibles, they take a little bit longer to work. And so the danger that people will get in with edibles is that the like one cookie will technically be like eight servings and you're supposed to have like an eighth of a cookie and then wait like 20 minutes for the effects to start taking it. And, and then you can kind of dose adjust from there. And of course, as you can imagine, I as an adult who like I should be able to monitor, like mitigate my food use will not be able to eat only an eighth of a cookie and then wait 20 minutes. So the edibles actually have a much, can have a much more profound effect, but it's delayed. And that's actually the kind of tricky and somewhat dangerous part. That's good to know. With marijuana, like obviously the pharmacology is pretty complicated, kind of at the medical student level, like what, what should we know about how marijuana exerts its effects in terms of, you know, the different receptors and how it acts in the body? Yeah. THC works on the endocannabinoid um, receptors, which are really very present in the brain, primarily the substantia nigra and the globus pallidus. And they're also present on some muscle tissue, uh, gonad tissue, and uh, adipose tissue. And it's a G-protein coupled receptor, which, you know, tests like to get that specific early on. Um, But largely what it does is it activates that um, 
that endocannabinoid system in the brain, which will make you more somnolent, make you more hungry and get you into that more relaxed state. And it will trigger the um, storage of THC in your adipocytes. So in your fat as well. So this next question, personally, I feel like I've heard, you know, controversial opinions on both sides of this, but, you know, are there any dangers to overdosing on marijuana or is it possible to overdose? Yeah. So there really haven't been cases of like deaths from the, from marijuana itself. The dangers with marijuana use come from other, like other things while you're high. So in Washington, when they saw that after recreational legalization happened, deaths from car accidents went up and those were actually related to marijuana. So people were actually driving more when they were high and they were more likely to die in a car accident when they were high. So it's not so much that the marijuana itself kills you. It's that if you are in an accident or you might be more accident prone, you are likely to suffer more morbidity and mortality as a result of that. I see. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Thank you for clearing that up. I think at this point, we can move on to our next question about marijuana. So for this question stem, we have a 13-year-old child who is brought in by his mother because he's acting strangely. He has become lazier, in air quotes, at school. As a result, his grades have suffered. She believes that he has been more depressed because he spends his free time sitting in his room and eating more than usual. On physical exam, you notice injective conjunctiva, but no other findings. Which of the following is the next best step for this patient? Is it A, a referral to a psychiatrist for depression? B, a urine drug screen? C, call Child Protective Services? Or D, referral to an ophthalmologist? This is a great question. Generally speaking, for test-taking strategies, if one of the answer choices is referral, that's almost never the answer. Um, And I feel like that has been the case for every standardized exam I've taken. Um, and I think, you know, this 13 year old is exhibiting pretty classic behaviors of, of depression or substance use or both. So I think you can very quickly get it down to um, A and B because D, I think it's pretty evident that there's a behavioral component here and an ophthalmologist probably isn't going to fix that. You don't really have anything to go to child protective services with just yet. You kind of need more information. And then, Narrowing it down between referral to a psychiatrist for depression and urine drug screen, you know, I think this would have been more tricky if it was um, screen for depression or urine drug screen. But you you should never really need to refer to a psychiatrist just to diagnose depression. There are many good clinic-based screens and tools that you can use to do that yourself and even start therapy. So I think the most appropriate um, answer is going to be the urine drug screen. Also, because these are, like I said, classic signs of um, someone starting to use marijuana and probably time to discuss testing. Yeah, I agree completely. Uh, (laughs) Like you said, I I feel like 99% of the time referring someone somewhere else (laughs) for board style questions is probably wrong. So, Kind of after you confirm that a pediatric patient is using marijuana, what are kind of your next steps in terms for this patient? Yeah. So we recommend using what we call the SBIRT model. So the screening and brief intervention with referral to treatment. So if you have a patient who screens positive for um, really any substance use, it's a 
broadly applicable tool, you want to get a little bit more detail about their use. How often are they using? How are they using it? Like smoking, vaping, edibles, all, you know, all the options. And then you want to start getting into risk taking behaviors and then kind of use that as your gestalt for if they're using a whole lot and doing a lot of risk taking behaviors, referring them to a more formal psychiatry or um, treatment program. But if they're using more casually, brief interventions or motivational interviewing is your good next step and then following closely. So brief intervention example would be like, as your physician, I recommend that you don't use marijuana. And hopefully you've learned something about them that you can use to help motivate them to stop. Like, I know you want to be a track star and marijuana will keep you from being able to achieve that goal. Or, you know, this costs a lot of money and it will (laughs) save you in the long run if you stop doing that. Yeah, no, that's definitely good advice on how to open up the conversation with your patients. Mm -hmm. Um, In terms of the urine drug screen, uh, Mm -hmm. I, I feel like people are sometimes a little confused about things that can interfere with it. And in terms of false positives, how long your urine drug screen will be positive. So do you mind talking about that a little bit? Yeah. And, you know, it's confusing a little bit for a reason because not everything is completely straightforward, unfortunately. Of course, your synthetic cannabinoids like uh, dronabinol are going to be a false positive because they are um, very structurally similar. There's antiretroviral HIV medication that is actually very often will cause a false positive. Um, It's efavirenin. I'm probably saying that wrong because I don't have to prescribe it. There's been some talk that NSAIDs can cause false positives. However, when they've really looked at that broadly, it's very rare that NSAIDs actually would cause a false positive. As far as how long THC will be in the UDS, that actually very much depends on the person's fat content in their body. Like I said before, THC will be stored in the adipose tissue. So if they have... um, a higher fat content on their body, that THC is going to be around for longer. Also, how much and how how much and how often they are using. So if they are using higher doses more frequently, it is going to be around for as long as a month, maybe longer. If they're using very casually every once in a while, it's going to be shorter, like a three days to a week. You know, besides your drug screen, <clears throat> excuse me, are there any other screening methods that you can use to look at marijuana use? I think the first screening, honestly, just asking. <laughs> there are a number of screening tools um, that'll just ask about substance use. And then there are a couple different kinds of urine drug screens. There are some pretty basic um, drugs of abuse screens and then more detailed, comprehensive drug screens that if you get that, you're can, you can be pretty positive that it is in fact THC because they do um, a, mu- a much more in-depth test on it. Okay, great. And maybe a little bit unrelated to the urine drug screen, but I thought we could take this time to talk about kind of the long-term effects of chronic marijuana use. And, yeah. you know, what would you do if you found a pa- if you had a patient come in that's been using it for a while? Yeah. So the, of course, making them aware of of the negative long-term effects, um, especially because culturally we don't seem to think that there are very many long-term effects. It's especially important for adolescents because their brains are still developing. So what we know for 
adolescents who use marijuana chronically is that um, their prefrontal cortex will not develop as well and their long-term decision-making is going to be decreased and their long-term ability to concentrate is going to be impaired, which is going to have its own negative effects later on in life. They're less likely to um, complete higher education and more likely to be unemployed. Also, which I find very interesting is that if the younger you start using marijuana chronically, the more likely or the more at risk you are for developing uh, schizophrenia or schizophrenia-like symptoms, which are permanent once they set in. And then more commonly, chronic marijuana use is closely associated with other mental health issues like depression and anxiety. Yeah. So as opposed to popular belief, there are chronic long-term effects. So absolutely important to tell our patients about them. Absolutely. Taste the Mediterranean through March 19th at Whole Foods Market. Save on animal welfare certified bone-in beef short ribs, sustainable wild-caught sockeye salmon, and more. Find sales on Parmigiano-Reggiano, charcuterie and ground lamb. Grab an olive boule bread from the bakery. Plus, wines from the Mediterranean start at just $8.99. Taste the Mediterranean now at Whole Foods Market. Must be 21 plus. Please drink responsibly. Um, so moving on to our next question, we have a 18-year-old patient who presented to your addiction clinic for an evaluation. She has been using cannabis regularly for the past three years, both inhaled and edible forms. Her past medical history is unremarkable, and she currently takes oral contraceptives. She would like to get pregnant and would like to stop using cannabis. Which of the following is true regarding the withdrawal symptom for this substance? Is it A, it usually peaks at seven days after the last use? B, the patient will have sleep problems, nervousness, anxiety, and this is prominent early during abstinence. Is it C, gradually increasing craving levels over time of abstinence? D, withdrawal symptoms emerge when the THC blood levels drop below 5 nanograms per milliliter, or E, it's associated with a hangover effect. And sorry for the the word salad. (laughs) No, you're good. Whenever I, I was approached with questions that are like withdrawal symptoms, I think the easiest way to maybe think about those without having to necessarily memorize them is the think about the opposite of what the drug does or the substance does. So sleep problems are common in withdrawal from any substance, actually, but nervousness and anxiety are actually really prominent. And we actually see this, especially in adolescents who use marijuana to help um, some pre-existing nervousness um, or anxiety because they think that it helps. Um, it, it does a temporary alleviation of those symptoms, but then the marijuana goes away and that rebounds pretty quickly. And then they get into this cycle of chronic use. And it's kind of hard to convince them that the marijuana is actually making it worse. Yeah. Um, especially because they're going through little bouts of withdrawal every time they, every time they stop using. So, you know, the the longer they have abstinence, the less they'll have cravings. So C is kind of, you know, antagonistic to that. The longer you go, the easier it'll be. And then I'm actually not sure that there is an established blood level for when withdrawal symptoms emerge. I think it's very much dependent upon how much you use and how regularly you use. Um, it's very dependent upon your own behavior. And then one of the reasons marijuana is seen as not not as bad as alcohol or nicotine is because there is no hangover effect. 
Yeah, no, so I, I agree completely with those. Um, any other withdrawal symptoms we should be aware of um, besides these sleep problems and you know anxiety issues? Yeah, so irritability, appetite changes, which you know you'd you'd expect with marijuana use, you tend to get more hungry, and um, with withdrawal, they might lose their appetite again, um, or really any kind of appetite change. If they were a very heavy marijuana user in that very initial stage of withdrawal, they might get the sweating, fever, chills, and hallucinations. Not as common. Okay. I'm glad that's not as common. <laughs> in terms of the withdrawal process, how long does it take to you know, kind of clear the marijuana out of your system and kind of get through this you know, initial withdrawal phase? Yeah. Um, typically a couple weeks um, to a month. If you're um, if you've been a pretty heavy user, it's going to be more on the month side when the withdrawal symptoms start to go away and you start having an easier time with it. That's what makes so adolescents who have uh, cyclical vomiting syndrome um, as a result from their chronic marijuana use. They have to be off of marijuana for at least a month before they start uh, getting some relief from their nausea. And that is very difficult for them to do, which has made um, cyclical vomiting associated with marijuana use very difficult to treat because they use the marijuana to um, temporarily relieve that nausea. And it's hard for them to understand that it's the marijuana that's making their nausea worse. And they have to be abstinent for at least a month. Yeah, that's definitely a tough situation. In a month, like you were saying, is kind of a long time. Is there anything you can give to your patients to help them out or any sort of treatment that's possible? So there are a couple of medications to help with uh, withdrawal like side effects. So you can give some like gabapentin to help with sleep or um, restlessness. If they are experiencing depression and anxiety, they absolutely need to be treated for that. Of course, the downside of that is those meds typically take about six weeks to start working. Uh, when it comes to cyclical vomiting, capsaicin has been tried and is not incredibly successful. It's successful enough that people will try it, but it's kind of a crapshoot if it's going to work or not, which is unfortunate. Um, there isn't really any medication um, that targets the actual true withdrawal like underlying cause. It's just um, mitigation of symptoms. Yeah, that's good to know. Thanks. Yeah. So at this point, that those are all the questions I had related to marijuana use. Is there anything else you think medical students should know? Any big category I might have missed with marijuana? No, I think that's um, that covers it pretty well. I think the you know the big thing that I I try to get across for everyone is whenever you're screening for substance uses in general, especially in a state where recreational use is legal. Approaching it from a non-judgmental standpoint is key in order for your patients to be open and honest with you and for them to listen to you whenever you're doing your um, counseling. Because, you know, nicotine, it's pretty well established that it's not good for you. But culturally, we haven't you know, gotten to the point that it's not great for adolescents in particular to use marijuana on a regular basis. Yeah, no, that is very true. So speaking of nicotine, yeah, uh, my next question is, um, we have a 17-year-old girl who presents to your office for her annual health checkup. Her past medical history is unremarkable. She started smoking a half pack a day of cigarettes for the past year since her friends introduced her. 
She has tried to quit several times on her own, but has not been successful. The abuse-related effects of the substance are associated with which of the following answer choices? Is it A, feelings of anxiety, B, pleasure and relief from dysphoria, C, orthostatic hypotension, D, the inability of nicotine to enhance the reinforcing value of other stimuli, or E, urinary retention? Um, So basically, which one of these symptoms occurs after you take nicotine? Yeah. Um, So one of the one of the reasons that people will smoke is to get rid of feelings of anxiety. So you can pretty much cross a right on off your list. The inability of nicotine to enhance the reinforcing value of other stimuli or the conditioning effect um, that that's like it's kind of related to chronic use, but I wouldn't necessarily put it. it's, it's one of the ways to define abuse, but it's not really an effect. The best answer for um, this question is B. So pleasure and relief from dysphoria, which kind of, you know, it, it's the direct antagonist of A, which is feelings of anxiety. People will smoke because it helps with their appetite and it makes them feel a little bit happier and takes the edge off of their anxiety. Yeah. So for this question, I I think A and B were really the major choices they're trying mm-hmm. to get you to decide between. Um, in terms of nicotine use, what other symptoms and signs are, you know, are characteristic that you see in your patients? It typically helps with energy. That cutting the anxiety and that little relief from dysphoria are kind of the big ones. It can actually, in teens, um, be difficult to tell. Um tell that they're smoking unless you can smell it on them and unless you're around them all the time to notice um, a change in their behavior, which is going to be around trying to find a way to constantly be smoking. So we kind of talked about this before. Um, Substance use is a sensitive topic when you bring it up with your patients. You know, specifically for tobacco, are there any sort of techniques that you use or that you are taught throughout your residency when you bring up this topic with your patients? Yeah. Um, so my general approach is, you know, so so we have a heads exam uh, format for like home education activities and you know, drugs. I will ask the adolescents, you know, what kind of activities they like to do, who they hang out with and what they do with those people when they hang out with them to try, try and get a sense of what their social circle is um, already. So the social circle for an adolescent is incredibly important because it's their driving force of identity at their stage of social development. And that means that if all of their friends are smoking and they're the last one to not smoke, they are so much likely, so much more likely than other kids to start smoking. So I, I use that to take the approach of asking what they do with their friends. And then I, I don't ask if any of their friends smoke. I ask who of their friends smoke. So that way, I'm not saying, oh, do any of your friends do a bad thing? I say, okay, what is it your friends do? Because I I also look at the statistics all the time. I know that many high schoolers, more high schoolers are experimenting with things and vaping and smoking than more likely that they have friends that who are doing those things than aren't. So I ask who does it. And then, you know, if they start telling me that their friends do it, I say, okay, so have they asked you to try or have you tried it? And I had a partner that would actually, if, if the kids, if the adolescent said no, they follow up, follow up with, Oh, really? Like it's completely normal. Like it is normal 
for kids, uh, for adolescents to be testing boundaries and to try new things. And so I would rather them tell me that they tried it once and then I can positively reinforce them not doing it or warn them about, you know, dangers of doing it more than have them insist that they're not doing anything and they don't want to talk about it. So I just kind of approach it from the like, oh yeah, I just assume that people are doing it. Tell me about who's who's doing what at your school. And then I circle around to them. Yeah, I really like that approach, you know, not <laughs> kind of tiptoeing around the question, but yeah. being straight up with these kids. And I think I feel like yeah. most people would appreciate that. So in terms of, you know, the dangers of smoking, we kind of know about the long-term sequelae, lung cancer, COPD. Yeah. For children specifically, what kind of things are you seeing or thinking about? Yeah. So um, you always worry about um, lung issues. So like kids with asthma are going to have much worse asthma, just like with COPD. Actually, more timely, COVID is actually far worse in um, adolescents who smoke or vape. They are much more likely to catch it and much more likely to be sick from it, which has been good to tell people. And then even if they don't have a lung disease, it's going to decrease their lung capacity. So if they're a sports person, that's a, you know, a, a good thing to weave into conversation there. And of course, the, the biggest risk is that they're going to be hooked and, and that they're, that they're going to have those long-term complications. Cause, um, is it like, it's like three and four, adolescents who smoke regularly are going to go on to smoke in their adolescence and adulthood. Yeah, that is quite a high percentage. (laughs) So moving on to our next question, we have a 20-year-old woman who presents to your primary care office for her annual checkup. She has an unremarkable past medical history. She currently smokes two packs of cigarettes per day, which she started around the age of 17. She's recently decided that she's ready to quit smoking. Which of the followings associated with withdrawal of this substance? Is it A, decreased appetite and weight loss? B, bupropion or renicline can be used to eliminate withdrawal, which is more so a treatment. Uh, mm-hmm. C, symptoms peak one day after the last cigarette. D, withdrawal severity and duration does not predict relapse. Or E, there's increased pain sensitivity and sleep disruption after the patient stops smoking. So kind of like we already talked about, decreased appetite and weight loss are some of the positive effects that people get from smoking. So you're actually going to get the opposite of those if you stop. Your appetite is going to change and you're probably going to gain weight. It's one of the things that people complain about whenever they stop smoking. Withdrawal severity and duration absolutely predicts relapse. And that's true for every substance. It's it's going to increase that intense desire that their brain's going to have their brain's going to convince them that they need it. Um, and the more intense that is and the longer it lasts, the harder it is to hold out. Like we've talked about before, sleep disruption is very common in all withdrawal. And increased pain sensitivity actually is, is seen in nicotine withdrawal, which I find really interesting. And then, yeah, bupropion and varenicline. So those are medications used to help help with cessation they do not eliminate withdrawal. (laughs) Yeah. Unfortunately. (laughs) So, you know, we kind of talked about the appetite changes, the weight changes, sleep changes. Are there any other major symptoms of nicotine withdrawal that you you see? Yeah. So kind of like we talked about before, since, since it helps curb anxiety, 
bad anxiety and panic attacks are not uncommon in withdrawal, as well as depression, because you've got, you know, that you're used to that euphoric sensation. And, and um, now you, you don't have that so much and your brain's trying to adjust. And then we talked about the app, increased appetite and weight gain, irritability, problems concentrating. Those are kind of the big ones. Okay. So good for this patient. So you decided to quit smoking. Yeah. Fantastic. Lots of, lots of positive reinforcement. Yeah. So that was going to be my next question. When they when the patient <laughs> decides to quit, how do you approach it? What are your steps to help them achieve their yeah. goal of quitting? Yeah. Smoking? yeah. So um, there are a couple different um, techniques and whichever works for your practice style is, you know, fantastic. I don't think there's any one that's more validated than the other. I tend to have a motivational interviewing based approach simply because that's how I was trained. So, you know, once, once they've reached that point of they feel ready to quit, really helping them figure out their goals and why they're doing it is going to be key because they are going to go through withdrawal. They are not going to want to do it anymore. And having those like aspirations, those motivators already discussed and in place can help it. But also having that honest discussion about what withdrawal is going to be like, so they know what to expect. And then um, establishing any kind of support or follow up that you can to help keep doing that positive reinforcement. And if if they go back to having a, a you know, a couple cigarettes, and you know they think they've slipped up, hey, it happens. And you just start over the next day, no judgment, you just keep positively building them up towards their, their good decisions. Great. Um, are there any, you know, resources that you use pretty often for these patients? Uh, you know, if you Google smoking cessation programs, there are a billion come up. So yeah, that you like. Yes. So um, there are so many good options, which I think is a great problem to have. Of course, there are um, medications that can help with craving. Uh, there's nicotine replacement. Uh, which can help with some behaviors. I like for adolescents, there are some app-based cessation groups that are adolescent focused, which I think is fantastic. For one, it's targeted towards adolescents because um, they have, you know, they have special brains and special, um, you know, ways of looking at the world and social development than adults do. Um, so you have to approach them differently than your your standard 40-year-old who wants to quit. And their rewards are, they just need to be different. Also, apps, just a fantastic way to reach out to kids because they're not going to go to a support group. <laughs> um, they're going to be texting someone. Um, and there are lots of text-based programs, which um, are just better for adolescents in general. Yeah. I, I Associated with more adherence. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, I, I even me personally, I feel like a text-based group would much be much easier to fit into my schedule than you know going every week somewhere. Exactly. Yeah. So now to my next question. So we have a 15-year-old girl who presents for a well child visit. When taking the history, your MA in the office asks, Do you smoke? And the patient says no. What feedback do you recommend for your MA when she, when the patient comes in again? How should she change her screening method? Is it A, tell her good work. Thank you for screening for tobacco use. Is it B, next time, please ask about chewing tobacco. C, 
Next time, ask about questions to get all types of nicotine use. D, next time, use a validated screening tool for smoking. Or E, next, ask specifically about e-cigarettes and vaping devices. Yeah. So this is like classic. One of the things I've actually been working on with like presentations I do is to improve the way that we word our questions when we screen for things like nicotine use. Because of course, this 15-year-old is going to say no <laughs> to do you smoke. Um, really, what's big, what's big in the last five years is vaping or e-cigarette use. And teens genuinely do not see that as smoking or even in the same category. So they're not trying to be deceitful. They genuinely think that they're telling you the truth that they do not smoke, which like to a certain degree, I, I completely see why they're saying no which kind of gets to number C. Next time, ask more questions to get all types of nicotine use because there are so many different types. There's chewing, there's um, e-cigarettes, vaping. Some teens will even get asked as concrete as saying that they jewel, but they don't vape. And jewel is a specific brand of e-cigarette. So it's still, it's still technically vaping, but they just say that they jewel, which honestly makes it like really difficult for this poor MA to screen for um, nicotine use. So like, I don't think she needs to, you know, get the brunt of this, but the EMR could probably use some updating. Using a validated screening tool for smoking isn't a bad idea, but it probably needs to be integrated into a bigger um, clinical system. Also, I'm not aware of a specific screening tool for smoking. There's validated screening tools just for substance use in general. Yeah, I believe D was trying to, you know, throw the test taker off. You know, if you yeah. throw a validating screening yeah. tool, it sounds like the right answer. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. it does. It absolutely does. So, yeah, I you know. Thank you for bringing up those good points. I think it's so hard because it seems like every year or two, there's a new trend emerging and new oh, yeah. terminology with all these things. So it's, it's really hard to keep track of everything. Mm -hmm. well, um, and even um, there was a pretty successful ad campaign against jeweling. So now jewel is starting to be used less, but it's just a different e-cigarette brand that's becoming more popular. So it's like, in the end, it's all the same. It's vaporized nicotine. It's just, you have to use the right word. Yeah, exactly. So you mentioned vaping and jeweling already. Are there any alternative forms of nicotine use you're seeing a lot? Um, I would think chewing tobacco and dip aren't as common these days, but um, so so that's really regional, like region dependent. In more rural areas, I've noticed um, it tends to be more popular. But yeah, out, overall, vaping is far and away the most common nicotine consuming device or you know way to consume nicotine currently which is honestly concerning because uh, there's a, a few studies now that have shown that if teens are regularly using electronic cigarettes, they are more likely to go on and smoke combustible tobacco in their 20s. And the Monitoring the Future um, study, which is a, a great adolescent screening study for all kinds of things, has shown that the number of adolescents who are vaping specifically because they feel like they're hooked and they have to has tripled in the last year. So the the scary thing about vaping is it is not nearly as caustic 
to the, you know, to your airway as combustible tobacco is. So they will, they will vape and consume way more nicotine than, than they would if they were smoking a pack of cigarettes and they won't realize how much they've, they've had. So they get hooked a whole lot quicker and a whole lot easier, which is why we're seeing, you know, the number of kids who are vaping, you know, they say because they feel like they have to or they're hooked is going way up and um, the overall rates are going up, um, which is concerning. Yeah, that is definitely concerning. That's a, you know, you know, thank you for bringing up that thought because even as a, in my mid twenties, I see some of my friends vaping all the time. And, you know, I don't think they would ever smoke cigarettes at these levels, but because vaping is so easy, so accessible. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's so, it's so tricky to get like, you know, we, have the comment, uh, the questions about, um, you know, people smoking two packs per day or a half pack per day. But to get that same like level of nicotine consumption in vaping, you have to ask a whole lot more questions. Like you have to ask how they're using it, like what kind of device they're using it. Pod based systems are the most common because they're easiest. And one pod can contain as much as an entire pack of cigarettes worth of nicotine. And so you have to ask how many pods they're doing a day, because if it's not that caustic, kids can be going through two to three pods a day. Also, because they're like, they used to be mango flavored. And that's like the big popular thing as the flavor. And they won't realize that they have consumed the equivalent of two to three packs of cigarettes a day at, you know, in high school. Yeah. Wow. That is a a crazy number to think about. Yes. Um, when these patients do come in, how does your like, how do you talk to them about the dangers of vaping? Because uh, like we mentioned previously, you know, people don't know. They think vaping mm-hmm. is safe. It's a safer form of nicotine use yeah. and they're not worried about it. Yes. Yeah. Um, so I think step one is convincing them that they are actually consuming nicotine because many teens think that they're only vaping flavoring when in fact, like Juul, for example, does not sell any product that doesn't have nicotine in it. So if they tell you that they're using a jewel, but it doesn't have nicotine, they're using some kind of like off brand or like they're using something non, non sanctioned to be used with their device, or they just don't know that they're, that they're consuming nicotine, which I think is the scariest part. So you have to convince them that they are actually consuming nicotine because even the products um, at stores that say that they're nicotine free, they've used FDA loopholes to not be regulated as much. And testing has shown that more often than not, they actually contain some levels of nicotine. So I think first step is convincing them that they are ingesting nicotine and then letting them know that they are, they are more likely to get hooked and to have their behavior altered, which is going to affect their performance in, you know, school, sports, personal life. And they are far more likely to actually go on and smoke cigarettes, which is which they should know is dangerous and harmful. Also, timely topic, they are more likely to get COVID and be sick with COVID. And then there is the vaping associated lung injury, which we were seeing actually like in the months before the pandemic, um, which I had taken care of one of those patients. And it's actually quite um alarming how sick they get, how quickly and how um, profound the lung injury is. And so honestly, having those kind of like personal stories of like, 
hey, I saw this patient and this is what happened to them can be effective. And thank you for that. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good approach. Um, yeah. So that is all the questions I had for you, Dr. Mm-hmm. Shiel. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. Is there Absolutely. anything else about marijuana and nicotine that you'd want medical students to know that we might have not covered? You know, I think we've covered pretty much everything. <laughs> all the important I'm, things. I'm glad I could cover everything. I feel like <laughs> great research. <laughs> no, um, this is good. Um, I think it, you know, it, it's a great place to start. And, um, you know, if you want to get more into it, um, there are many docs who would love to talk to you about a future in addiction medicine. <laughs> Sounds great. Um, so once again, thank you so much for doing this. Um, and with that, we can end this podcast. <laughs>